Fangoria Magazine is back and better than ever in a deluxe 100-page quarterly edition. Each issue includes set visits, deep dives, new discoveries, and minimal ads, all printed on collectible-grade paper stock that reimagines the classic magazine for a 2019 audience. You'll see familiar names like Michael Gingold and Tony Timpone, and you'll see bylines that will leave your jaw on the floor, like Barbara Crampton. And the best part, it's print only, just like the old days. Go to Fangoria.com to subscribe today. Hi, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem AMA, our fun-sized show where you can ask me anything. We run this on alternating weeks between the interview shows, and uh, it's your opportunity to ask me anything you'd like, and I might even answer them. So normally this is moderated by my producer, Joe Russo, but Joe, I'm happy to say, is on location directing his first film, and I could not be happier for him or send him better wishes than I have for him right now, and I know all of you share in that. However, that leaves me on my own, and so I'm going to answer your questions directly. Uh, the first one from Devon Graham Scar, who asks... Did you take that classic photo of Cronenberg with his bloody film canisters? And if so, what is the story behind it? Well, that requires a little bit of backstory. Way back around 1980 or so, when I was doing my Z Channel interview show, which was uh, for Los Angeles' first pay TV channel, uh, I started doing genre publicity for a scrappy little company called Avco Embassy Pictures. And Avco Embassy at the time was the leading uh, film distributor for independent horror films. They had movies by John Carpenter, David Cronenberg, uh, Don Coscarelli, Joe Dante, and I was fortunate enough to be involved in doing some work in all of those, doing specialized genre publicity for the genre magazines and for the various conventions and festivals around. So one of my first assignments was Scanners, and I got to work with David. David, who lives in Toronto, was visiting Los Angeles to do publicity for the movie, and uh, we had set up a photo shoot with him, so I did not take the photo myself. That photo was taken by a professional photographer. However, I set it up in my office at Avco Embassy in Hollywood, and so I lettered all those film cans with the names of David's movies up to that time and poured the blood on. Actually, David, I think, took uh, the bottle of fake blood in hand as he was the maestro in that regard, famous for his line, more blood, more blood, every time he was shooting a scene like that. So uh, he orchestrated the blood. We set that up and it was done in my office. So um, that is how it was done. I did not take the picture, but it was done at Avco Embassy to promote the film scanners in my office. At Daryl C395 asks, what's the worst bad weather you've ever had to deal with on set? And how do you deal with it? Well, I would have said that it was on the stand where we were on location, almost all of it outside. Um, and every time there was something that called for a specific weather, we got the opposite, and there was nothing we could do. Very little cover sets, because actors, of course, are scheduled 
to run their scenes as closely together as possible so you don't have to pay them exorbitant rates for in between their scenes shooting. So there's not a whole lot of juggling uh, when you've done a production schedule and you've got 125 speaking parts. So we would have snow when there should be sun. We would have rain when there should be snow. Uh, every kind of mix of weather that you could imagine. But we would just roll with it and it, and it turned out fine. However, when I was shooting a show called Dead of Summer uh, in Vancouver, we had the definite worst weather experience I've ever had on a shoot. We were out in a park shooting uh, remotely and rain started pouring down, pouring down. And we had shot the master and a couple of the close-ups and it's a very important scene in this in this series and the rain kept increasing and increasing and we were shooting next to a creek and it was a half a dozen cast members and it was quite a complicated scene where a lot of things had to go on and the rain got harder and harder and harder and we had to wait it out because you're working on a television series you really have to commit to a schedule and there's no getting around it and nobody was going to pull the plug unless we had tried everything. We tried putting up tarps, but even that <laughs> had rivers flowing down on every end. And it was pretty, uh, well, it's the biggest rainstorm I've ever been in in my life. And this creek started to overflow. It was so bad. And uh, everything was being washed out. Uh, everything was going crazy. The creek became a raging river. The rain was so that it fell in sheets, not in drops. And we kept waiting and waiting. And so it's midnight and it's getting worse. It's one o'clock, it's two o'clock. Finally, at 4 a.m., they pulled the plug and allowed us to give in, to throw in the towel, as it were. <laughs> and we needed those towels. So um, we came back the next week in another park location where we shot all of the coverage, the close-ups of the various actors and the like, with a lot of greenery in the backgrounds and trying to hide that we weren't in the same location, and it worked out pretty well. But that's when you really have to just kind of let, uh, let nature dictate what you do. But that was probably the worst. I also was on a shoot um, in Toronto for a show called Happy Town, and we were caught up another re remote location in a cabin location. And we were caught in a cyclone. So it was similar weather and it just beat the crap out of us. Fortunately, we were shooting inside, but even that had to be shut down. We found out the next day that it was a cyclone and incredibly dangerous and we should never have been there. Um, but we got as much of the scene as possible and, uh, and it worked out pretty well. So uh, Mother Nature can be your best friend or your worst enemy. And if you're a filmmaker, you just have to learn to roll with the punches, as in every other respect. Okay, why was Stephen King's melting face cut out of The Shining? So for those of you who have seen these pictures and the like, they've been circulating the internet again recently uh, quite a bit where Stephen King plays the band leader Gage Creed uh, in this uh, nightmarish ghost sequence in the Shining miniseries that, that we made together. 
with Stephen Weber and Rebecca de Mornay. Uh, we're shooting this big, uh, well, let's see, it was a big band sequence where King plays the band leader dressed in a uh, white tie and tails, white tails, by the way, very much a Cab Calloway sort of uh, rendition. And he's the band leader and we're playing swing music and there's an Andrews Sisters type thing. And at one point in the story, um, there, when the strike, when the clock strikes midnight, everything goes to hell. This is when uh, the the spirits uh, have been fought by Jack Torrance and his his resistance to their overwhelming his personality. And so, at the stroke of midnight everything goes crazy and everything starts melting down including the ghosts in this party sequence in the uh, in the overlook hotel so there were very elaborate makeups done uh, including putting tubes under stephen king's prosthetic makeup that made him kind of as much a zombie as a ghost uh, all of the ghost zombie types start melting down as all of this prosthetic ooze is pumped out from under his face prosthetics. So it's quite remarkable and really fun and gooey and messy as hell. And King had the time of his life doing that. It was really, really fun. And it was just like being kids playing in the mud. Well, once we started putting the show together and you know, everything was taken very, very seriously. It's a very, um, it's a very emotional kind of show. Uh, and the decline of Jack Torrance and his relationship with his family and everything, we take it very seriously. And everyone was very committed to that and the drama of it. We certainly did not shy away from the suspense and the horror of it. But this scene, this meltdown of these characters, just was a little too monster movie. It kind of turned everything into a B-movie direction that didn't seem to fit everything that was around it. So we basically made the choice to, um, to delete it. It was a difficult choice. It was really a rough one to make because all of the work that went into it, we had the Emmy-winning effects from Steve Johnson and Billy Corso. Uh, the makeup effects were were very elaborate. Took hours and hours and hours to shoot um, and to orchestrate. All of that was very complicated. Uh, but once you see it sticking out like a sore thumb, you just have to make the decision on what's best for the movie. And we made that decision. King was in on that decision as well. Um, but it just really, when I when I looked at the uh, at the first cut and saw everything in its place, uh, it just did not seem to fit emotionally. All right, so that is this week's postmortem AMA, our fun size Q and A show where you can ask me anything. You can send your questions to us at postmortemgram at Instagram. Uh, on Twitter at PostmortemMG or to our producer Joe Russo at Joe Russo Tweets on Twitter as well. And bring them on. I'm looking forward to your questions and thanks for listening to Postmortem AMA.